1: Today's episode deals with something that has come up a few times, indirectly, but the subject matter hasn't always been present to speak for themselves. The first transatlantic telegraph cable was completed in 1858 by Captain Halpin from Wicklow and it's connected North America to Europe by way of Newfoundland, Canada and Valencia Island and Kerry. It may have broken down three weeks later, but the cultural connection remains as strong as ever. Irish-American is a term often employed without great nuance. In this week's episode, we discuss the generational and regional difference found in the Irish of modern America, and what place they occupy in that majority immigrant nation. What's it like to celebrate Irishness on St. Patrick's Day in Boston? And what purpose did the beautifully ambiguous term Republican serve for Irish nationalists? Our take after this. This episode of Mother Folklore is made possible by the generous support of listeners who support the show on Patreon. Listeners like Laurie Rebecca and David Bullis. Mulebwicus, Laurie, August David. And now the show. podcast network. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, well, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. I have um, a long standing, like a lot of Irish people do, a long standing interest in Irish America and how that the perception of this has changed within my own lifetime. Um, from working as a, a waiter in Kerry to, and attending to Irish-American tourists who are here, to studying with Irish-Americans on, on exchange programmes, to travelling over there and seeing, I guess, how this community has, has perceived itself and how the world has perceived it and how that has bounced front and back. It's something that's been shown as a sharp relief in the Trump era, particularly. It seems markedly different from 20 years ago when the the perception of Irish America was very different during the peace process, but... Someone I've invited to talk to us about this is a Massachusetts native. He has written for the New York Times. He has written for Upworthy. He has written fiction and composed music. Regular listeners of the show will recognise his unforgettable mashup of Fuck the Police and Come Out you Black and Tans. He is none other than Tom Dunn.
0: Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me.
1: My absolute pleasure. We've been meaning to have you on for a while, and I'm just delighted we can get you on
0: today. Yes, it's a wonderful time in in quarantine. It certainly is. And you have recently become a father, Tom. I yes, I uh, about six weeks ago. um Having a child uh, during a pandemic while your country is also exploding in police riots is quite an experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, but I think you know it's. Uh,
1: it's the, I think the, the arrival of a child, even when when things are chaotic, can can put
0: the, put stuff in perspective in a very nice way. It really has been. I mean, people certainly say that kids are a blessing, and it really does frame things in such a different way, and kind of makes you want to fight for a better world, and put you mm-hmm. make remind you of what you need to care about as well. And de- definitely, one thing that
1: I found when I became a father was I started seeing things. I started seeing the future in the past in in other kind of and sharp perspectives. The idea that I started thinking about what the world would be like when um, when my children are 18 or 21 or in their mid 20s and I started thinking about what the world was like when I was born and how much things have changed in my own lifetime. Television being one thing the idea I remember when I was coming home from school we'd have these um, reruns of like of that girl and the Mary Tyler Moore show and Happy Days and M.A.S.H. And they seemed so old-fashioned and jarringly kind of um cheesy to us and now when i when i see people i guess young people now who are in their 20s who find friends and Frasier and sex and city kind of mm. like behind the times it i guess those shows are even further back than those 70s shows were for me
0: right i i, I worry a lot about like i, I my, as my my wife Bevan likes to joke that I, I want to live in a spaceship, which is not untrue. Um, mm. So I have all the kind of connected smart home stuff, and I do worry about what, the, uh, you know, me calling out to Echo every five minutes or so to turn on the lights in the house. Um, I wonder <laughs> how, how this child will eventually react to that, and in 20 years what that what that will do to his mind.
1: I think there is,
0: um, particularly for... Um for
1: men who are interested in feminism and progressive politics, um, becoming a dad can often, um, throw into relief this idea that are you, are you dadding hard enough? Are you good enough at, you know, fixing plugs and doing other kind of, uh, traditionally dad things. And instead of maybe worrying about you know, is the child okay? And are you, are you available if something goes wrong? And those kinds of things.
0: I mean, my background is mostly in theater music and writing. And i in the last few months, I have like installed a new floor at our house and I've done all kinds of things. And I'm like, wow, this is like, this is weirdly the, uh, the daddiest I thought I'd, I'd ever be.
1: <laughs> Great stuff. And your son now is obviously, the reason I bring up your son It out was the, he is, um, a new generation of Irish America, which is going to be completely different from the generations of Irish Americans that we've we've gotten to know through politics, through pop culture, through self representation and through the how they've been perceived in the eyes of others. And I was hoping you'd be kind of to talk to maybe us about that, how how perceptions of Irish America have changed in your own lifetime and in your family's lifetime. Yeah. Maybe you could start by I mean, you're a you're a young fellow, you're born in the nineteen eighties, am I right? Yep, eighty five. Good stuff. Good year. Back to the future. It was a great year. <laughs> when when did you start being conscious of your Irish heritage?
0: I mean, it was always a very big part of my family growing up. We always, like, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was a huge, huge part of our lives uh, in in New Haven, where I grew up. Um, Before my, right before I was born, my parents lived in this house, and their next-door neighbors were Irish immigrants also. Um, They had come over in in the 70s, I believe, in the early 70s, and... um, Mm -hmm. Uncle Pat had come, and Bridie came from uh, County Clare, and, and they were my aunt and uncle, as far as I was aware, probably until they they passed away, and I realized that we, we weren't blood relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we'd always go over there, and Uncle Uncle Pat would, would speak to us, ask you, okay? And, you know, he'd share music, and my dad would bring us to whatever pubs had a session going on, and that just, like, felt like a normal normal part of our lives all the time. And That's I cool. think, I don't think I, I, I have a very weirdly, Weirdly distinct memory, which because it's memory, it's probably fake and all contrived in my mind anyway, uh, with the perfection of it. But I, I think the more I became like acutely aware of it as a like a unique identity, Mm -hmm. uh, is this like, or I recall these being around the same time, but they probably were not. Um, But they blend together in my mind was I think the first time I watched Blazing Saddles, my dad. Yeah. uh, I was probably 10. And uh there's a joke in there uh it's use slurs. I'm not going to say those of course, but mm-hmm. essentially it's uh saying in you know a parody of racism it's saying like, okay, we'll accept like the the blacks and the Chinese, but we won't take the irish and my mm-hmm. my parents were like very are very like progressive and positive people who like really tried to bring a lot of diversity in my life and I remember that moment, and I was like, "Okay, I definitely like my parents explained racism to me in a very, in a very blind American, <laughs> very like meaning, well-meaning blind American way." And that you mm-hmm. can understand as a kid, you can understand that you're like, "Okay, these people mm. look different, so therefore, I can understand why people were extra mean to them at one point in history." But yeah. as now it's the '90s and history is over or something or everything behind everything in the past is no longer an issue is what you're kind of taught growing up in america oh yeah and uh so then you're i was like i just don't understand because the irish people look like other people why would that be an issue Hmm. why wouldn't they want the irish i didn't understand that and my dad like trying to like kind of like stumbled around trying to explain the history Hmm. of that joke and right around the same time again in my memory probably not uh, I remember being at my aunt's, my aunt's house, and um, my great uncle, Reggie, is from Belfast, um, and is very much a unionist. And I just remember him, like, I, I don't even know what the context was. I just remember him grumbling something about, like, those effing Irish Catholic assholes. <laughs> and I was, like, really confused. Again, I'm mm-hmm. probably 10, and I was like, hey Dad, isn't Uncle Reggie from Ireland? Why does he say that? And my dad's like, okay, well, he, he is from Ireland, but it's also, like, different Ireland. But it's like Ireland, but, um, uh, okay, let's get you some candy. <laughs> and, from there. and those are the two moments I remember distinctly, mm. distinctly kind of recognizing that uh, there was something more than the fun parades and pub sing-alongs.
1: Mm it's like a it's a hard enough thing to, for adults to explain to each other having to explain the um, northern irish context to a child
0: can be can present all sorts of challenges <laughs> yeah i certainly i mean i my family i was raised catholic but i had plenty of protestant friends none of this mm-hmm. in american context made any sense to me i was like i don't know they just have like a they just have a certain like they just do a different church that's literally it right my dad's like, well, yes, that is it, it but th- there was other stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah, because I know I know there are certain kind of um, certain Catholic stereotypes in America, um, which about, about Catholic schools and um, and various other, I suppose, things. But they, they aren't specifically Irish. And then yes, also, and you might find that maybe some of those religious divides in parts of America can be less, or certainly less um, pointed than sports team divides.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, even in New Haven is interesting because there's a, both a large Irish. American and a large Italian American community there, and mm-hmm. there's like, a, like a, a, it's it's more pronounced New Haven of this kind of like underdog diaspora tension. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's friendly, but there's this kind of a like a little a little competition, one-upmanship. Oh yeah. Um, it took me until later in life to realize also because New Haven is about equidistant between Boston and New York City, and um, so it wasn't very normal for me to know people who were fans of the new york yankees and fans of the boston red Sox. i didn't didn't clock it until i was older that like nine times out of ten the irish americans were red Sox fans and the italian americans were yankees fans of course (laughs) and it really just made me understand the turf war a lot better Mm.
1: so these were kind of your early senses of irishness being um a thing that was part of you then when you became a teenager then maybe this this you started maybe picking your own um Kind of, you know curating your own music and film taste and book bu- taste and books and things like that
0: and did irishness feature there absolutely i mean i mm-hmm. think uh i got into punk rock at a pretty early age and i think even my like i was drawn to the the very first drop murphy's album in 1997 and mm-hmm. then, uh, i think a big part of that was i was like this is something i can share with my dad yeah. And that was kind of a neat thing to be able to be like, because he at that point he was like, wow, why are you listening to this fast, aggressive, angry music all the time? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, but here's this. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. And that was like a nice point of bonding. And it was like got older I was th- in high school, I started listening more to, or reading more. Uh, I tried to read uh, Flan O'Brien in high school. I don't think that mm-hmm. really went very well. But I tried. Mm-hmm. I read it later in life and figured it out. Same with Joyce. But um, yeah, I had this kind of like, I guess I had access to the f- fairly generic uh, library and, and film collection, sure, of Irish poetry, of Irish movies. And I don't think I really, really started... And I, I always felt pride in those things, and I had a personal connection to them, but I don't think I really got in-depth into understanding them uh, mm. until I was in college. Yeah. And then you went on, you, st- you went to study literature in college. Yes, I went to... Uh, I, w- I, I moved to Boston. I went to Emerson College here. And uh, hmm. I studied writing and literature, and and theater and music as, as two majors. Those even though they're two things, and both of those things, that's how the college works. <laughs> yeah. And um, I took a British literature class uh, my sophomore year, I believe. And, okay. Uh, the teacher was this New Zealand woman who like, was like this ancient, the scholar in ancient Greek, and yeah, uh, it was really interesting because she took a she took a very post colonial perspective to the British literature course. And it it went, you know, the class in general went very chronologically through British literature. But Mm -hmm. um, toward the latter half of the semester, we read a lot of post-colonial literature. And including within that, we read a lot of Joyce and talked a lot about, like, what this means in this context. And I think that's when I really was, like, got very interested in the kind Mm of uh, post-colonial aspect of it because it really started to connect with, like, Kind of that anecdote about those moments i had as a child and kind of through a lot of the like ideology and uh fervor and passion i had learned uh through like through punk rock and it kind of all started to gel together then as I was understanding Joyce through this post-colonial perspective.
1: It's funny how punk rock keeps keeps turning up in the context of, uh, of post-colonial literature and things like that and it's, um, it's I guess it's funny how, I guess how significant kind of um, Irish communities were in London when when that the punk movement was starting there and how there's a post- similar punk movement in Northern Ireland which I think Johnny Lydon referred to as ground zero of, of punk rock globally was within the Northern Ireland scene with stiff little fingers and people like that and it's it's funny how this that it seems to run parallel with people's interest in postcolonial literature sometimes well for students anyway for for literature students anyway it seems to
0: yeah I, I, I think i think there's probably an overlap um in a very simplistic way to say that like there's kind of a an anti-authoritarian a thoughtful anti-authoritarian attitude to to both postcolonialism and to punk rock hmm. there's it's not just like sticking up your little finger at the man there's like kind of the but the better bands, anyway, there, there's kind of more of a, like, reflection and a self-awareness of, like, let's look at what this actually means in this context. And we're going to do it in a loud way that's like that grabs your attention, but mm. hopefully there's more levels to this here. And I think post-colonialism is, is, is a similar kind of concept of, like, we're looking at how the authority said this is what, what sh- things should be. And now mm-hmm. we're going to deconstruct that and consider why they said that this is how it should be. And how you that know. has like played out.
1: It's almost like it comes down to tearing down a statue. They both want to tear down statues. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is quite true. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, when you were in your young teens, and this is something maybe that that comes into Irish perspectives of Irish Americans, were you conscious of the peace process on the news and in
0: conversations and the Irish peace process when you were a young teenager? Not very much. Uh, I think I remember like, my parents bringing it up. And I remember it kind of coming up, uh, being mentioned in school um, Mm -hmm. in general. But I think at that point, I was, well, in general, I guess Bill Clinton's blowjobs took priority over a lot of uh, different (laughs) things. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, For better and for worse, I suppose uh, that was. And when you're, especially when you're like 11 years old. the only thing you're really paying attention to is giggling at a president uh, having horrible sex, uh, yes. and, which is probably terrible uh, in hindsight. But as a you know, best pre-bes- prepubescent boy, I suppose that was like the thing you're really picking up on. But it was super cool. I remember, I do remember like seeing some footage of that like dairy visit and the, being like, "Wow, that's cool," because that's like the guy that everyone makes all the jokes, of, immature jokes about. He's in Ireland, <laughs> not my and that's cool. And that really mm. Kind of about <laughs> right in my mind. Connected on that.
1: That's good. Kind of, so we, when, like, as, as, a, as a kind of a young teenager, you didn't have a sense of that that Northern Ireland was this thing that was distinct from kind of uh, the Berlin Wall or from from the Middle East or from various other conflicts as they turned up in the world?
0: No, I think, and there's, I think this is very very American thing of um, anyone of any kind of ethnic background, uh, the kind of self-deprecating humor around it, which would help you blend in. Mm. You kind of, like, crack your jokes. So, like, those like, friends of mine who I grew up with, if if they were, like, if they were Northern Irish or they were Protestants, but also Irish, Irish-American, uh, you would kind of have that, it was like a joke, I guess, mm. um, being like, oh, okay, well, yeah, whatever, he's the orange guy. Um, <laughs> and it was just, like, I don't think any of us understood what that meant, but it was this kind of, like, self-deprecating assimilist assimilationist humor i guess mm. uh, like i had i did have one friend who like would stubbornly wear orange every saint patrick's day because he thought it was just obnoxious
1: i knew a guy like that too and yeah. a, an american <laughs> and I think, friend of mine did that he thought it was gas
0: yeah it, just, it was just like meant for like laughs mm. and i don't think any of us knew what we were laughing at but it was just like well that's like contrary and unexpected ha ha and that was kind of where it ended.
1: <laughs> Would you ever remember anyone, any of your peers, describing themselves as Scots Irish? Never.
0: Interesting. And I, I mean, as when, when you asked me to, um, to, to join you on the show here, uh, I did. Mm. Like, I kind of fell in a Wikipedia hole actually, and seeing about know, <laughs> like Scots Irish. So I was like, I want to make sure. Like, I think I know my Irish Americanness enough, and I was mostly right. And I was like, I forgot. There's like a whole Scots Irish mm. thing, and I, I knew that in like Appalachia there. Um, there was a large uh, scotch-irish like like founding community there and i believe there's actually a lot of traveler dna um in the appalachian region at the same time it's like i know that there's a lot there is certainly plenty of scottish background uh but i think that was generally earlier like early there were plenty of scottish early settlers in america um who came over either to escape from britain or because they had power and wanted to uh so i think i never thought about the relationship between the specific scots irish americans i just knew that there were some people who were scottish american and they were generally more assimilated and there were people who were irish irish americans and they had a range of assimilation
1: because yeah i know i know i know like johnny cash i think was um had um a cat ancestry in in ireland on that's been claimed in the north and the south of the border i know in the town of um Oh, the same same town as the whiskey. What's it called again? The um, Bush nice. Bushmills. Yeah, they've got they have all these um, signs up. You know of, of, of famous uh, Americans of of Northern Irish Unionist heritage, and they've John Wayne, they've him, and they've uh, a couple of problematic presidents, and. <laughs> You know, as, as I like, but but then I remember thinking because cash it would be a name that's quite common in the traveling community and it's it's quite possible. There's some stories in there, yeah. and I'm suppose I'm thinking we just you know we've um, on one level yes you've, you're conscious of Irishness being part of your part of your Americanness. And do you remember your first St Patrick's Day in a pub? In a pub. Do you, um, do you remember? Do you remember kind of the first time that maybe being being in a, in a bar in St Patrick's Day, things like green beer—the first time the maybe these things came across to you as being—and how did you feel? I suppose when did was this something that you actually felt that you was very including or very removing?
0: Yeah, so that's that's a loaded, a surprisingly loaded question. Um, okay. know, certainly, in in college, uh, we'd go out drinking, yeah. we would go to parties, and people just like had yeah. green cocktails, and I think like i I mean I'd go out for the party and I wouldn't like yeah. and I was kind of felt a little like disappointed <laughs> ultimately I don't yes. like these parties um and people would get or people would get mad at me for like not wearing enough green or like glittery mm. shamrock stickers on my face or whatever um <laughs> And I was just like, well, that's dumb. Just give me some Jameson and give me a pint of Guinness and like, let's hang out and listen yeah. to Lizzie for a while or something. Uh, and and yeah, I remember I it's a good evening. I, yeah. I think, and yeah, my, my senior year of college, I decided I was going to throw my own party for that reason. And I was like, <laughs> I kind of got a reputation a bit with some friends about being a, a dick about my stereo. And um, <laughs> I think and part of that was like, I was like, Hey, I was like, I was like, it's St. Patrick's day. I was like, we can all get drunk. I don't really care. Like, that's cool. Just like, Let's listen to Dubliners for a while while we do this. And, um, yeah, so I was like, I was a bit of a stickler about that just because, like, I had these memories of childhood of, of, you know, going to this parade in the pubs and sing alongs and stuff. And I, I liked that part. And I was like, we can get drunk any night. We're in college. That's what you do in college. And, um, yeah why like let's just like have this be a little good like a little a little different and like recognize a little a few more parts of our heritage um i think and the uh, saint patrick's day in boston in particular is chaotic uh i have I think i've been to the to the south boston parade like twice ever and i i hate it because it's an absolute wreck uh in the streets mm-hmm. and everywhere um and if you go to like, most of the bars downtown like there are places pouring green beer they have special green cocktails and it's always packed it's always just a a hot mess um i in the neighborhood i i live in a neighborhood called Jamaica Plain and um hmm. there's a pub here called the Brendan Bean and um frankly probably it mean it's the best pub i've pretty much encountered in the world uh, i love the place and they have a they they have sessions every uh, every Saturday. It's also, I mean, to, to the we were saying earlier, it's a very like punk rock, grimy, towny Irish bar. I think it was just fitting yeah. of Brent and Bean anyway. And um, mm. so actually I actually, I, I usually just go to the Bean. I just camp out there all day. And it's like, they have a very low tolerance for bullshit, which is very nice. And the for session sure. plays on, they have people bring food and people just bring food to share to show up like with plates of food to share. And uh, everyone kind of hangs out and that's my much preferred way of spending st patrick's day definitely that
1: sounds great we'll be right back after this message from another wonderful head stuff show fireside once upon a
0: time Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week we breathe new life into old stories from folklore and mythology. From the mysterious landing of the old Celtic gods, to the epic wars fought by Cú Chulainn and Queen Maeve, right down to the petty squabbles between headstrong mortals and roguish fairies. We already have a huge collection available with a new episode every Wednesday. This is not just a podcast for folklore fiends, but for anyone who enjoys a good story. And who doesn't love a good story? My name is Kevin C o'lehan and I am your host and your fireside bard. Wherever you are in the world, you can always join me by the fireside.
1: So I think St Patrick's Day is—it's a, a time when the, you often find there's these kind of um, soft kind of articles about Ireland are likely to turn up. You get the, your, your buzz feed lists about you know. Um, Irish actors people like or, or movies and things and then people talk about oh, things you didn't know about Ireland and I know just from doing what I do at the Irish for you might get occasionally see articles with lists of Irish words right and it's it's a funny one because I, I think on one level this is something that Ireland has that hasn't really caught on other countries have their day hasn't completely caught on yet maybe Chinese New Year to a, to, a, to a different extent I think
0: I think in particular Cinco de Mayo is similar to St. Patrick's Day, especially in Boston, because it is just like, it's a reason to get drunk and like mm-hmm. possibly allude to some cultural stereotype. And, uh, you know, there's fun parts about that when you're young and dumb, I guess. Um, mm. <laughs> but there are definitely people who, as they get older, are like, hey, can we focus on like the cultural part? And we can still, you know, party and hang out, but can we mm. focus on this on this particular part? I have, I have a friend uh, through theater work and she's, mm. A Boston native who is half Mexican, half Irish. And so she gets particularly <laughs> cranky on holidays.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. God, yeah, that'd be, uh, that's, a, that's a cross to bear. <laughs> yeah. Because I suppose if, people's, um, if people celebrate around the world kind of acted on uh, on the 4th of July as if, you know, p- perpetuating certain American stereotypes. Would you just shoot guns at each other? <laughs> it, 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 would, it could be interesting, that's for sure. But then yeah. I suppose it's... Um, and I guess during, during the Clinton era, there was a, obviously a huge interest in this. Uh, this I guess there was an acceptance of in Ireland of a certain a certain level of American soft power, and kind of opinions in America were very good at the time. Is also the Celtic Tiger was happening. A lot of Irish mm-hmm. American companies were, were setting up offices here, and as the kind of the the decades passed and things dragged on, there was a sense maybe in some American politicians like that <clears> that that the Ireland thing was finished, it was time to move on to a new thing, which on one level, fair enough. On another level, there was a, there's a sense of an ending, which isn't always a fun thing. But then around this time, I think possibly this is something that I mean, was always lurking in the background, but it really became apparent when Trump's first cabinet came along that a lot of his entourage had these Irish surnames. These were all probably people who, who probably grew up in very kind of pro-Kennedy-Democrat backgrounds, mm-hmm. l- and gradually moved away from that in the in the preceding um, quarter century and through either through maybe through some um, all vote for Reagan this once kind of a Democrat families to just going completely completely hard right.
0: Yeah I mean that that was uh-huh. that certainly that was my father's my father's trajectory for a while uh, he, he is mm-hmm. he luckily did not swerve all the way to the hard right and yeah. uh, is much more mm-hmm. sane than that and uh, much more has much more empathy than that um. But I think I think you nailed it. I think there is this certain uh, Kennedy Democrat mindset. Then it kind of turned into Reaganism somehow, and I, I think mm-hmm. a large part of that was um, I don't know how, how 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 common the the lace curtain phrase is in Ireland.
1: This is something I was actually hoping to bring up because obviously this is something that's only used by Irish Americans okay. against that's each other. Thought, yeah. It's not yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But lace curtain, for those who don't know, uh, is kind of the. Um, pejorative jab at the like upper middle class uh you know status climbing irish americans there's like the shanty irish and there's 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 the lace curtain if you can afford to move out of the suburbs Mm. and generally what happened was yeah it was a lot of people who immigrated to america a lot of them you know moved into like south boston and a lot of them got involved in unionizing work or police work um i can go on in depth about like the meta levels of like underdogs policing to like other own communities and how that kind of gets all messed up very quickly. But, um, yeah, the sooner enough you all of a sudden have upward mobility through that and mm-hmm. the, you're rewarded for assimilating in that way. So of course you do. And then you move out to the suburbs and then the, you know, it, it's nice that you, like, you still have your Irish last name. You still have your, your, your Falchia, um, doormat in front of your house. Um, mm-hmm. that's all nice and well, but, uh, it ends up being this like very like the suburban community ends up kind of becoming more and more insular, and as you rise up, you start, people start getting more and more conservative and trying to keep like their own communities safe. And that upward mobility, the lace curtain kind of refers to that upward mobility, where you are mm-hmm. like isolating yourself further and further in your fancy house with lace curtains in the suburbs. Um, mm-hmm. It is definitely like a yeah, Kennedy to Reagan trajectory and upwards beyond about that. And for some of those people, like the certain aspects of their Irishness will like do carry through. Um, But I think a lot of that is less specific to their Irishness. Um, So I think think at that point that the kind of assimilation is complete. Uh, I think there's a very, in in American culture in general, we have this, in my opinion, fairly twisted, obsession with like our, our underdog nature, yes. uh, which mm. is so weird that we're just like an imperialist monster of a country and built on the graves. And yet here we are. And, um, but it's still this like all oh, the rags to riches thing. Like you worked hard, you paid yourself off everyone. That's what everyone does. Everyone starts from nothing and everyone works hard and builds up. And um, I, that's not <laughs> the actual case. I mean, Britain certainly has its issues, but like, I do feel like Britain is better than America at acknowledging like, Oh, so-and-so went to Eton. Okay? Can we just recognize that? Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> and the class issues exist still, but in America, it's like, no, no, everyone starts on an even ground, which is not true at all. But I think that for Irish Americans, that they, they wear that as a point of pride. And even as they are yeah. raised, and even as they're raised in upper middle class suburbs and beyond, uh, and even with the Catholic aspect of it even, kind of gives them this underdog pride. Uh, unlike, unlike in Europe, like, Catholicism is like a smaller thing in the States because we have such a large, like evangelical Protestant population here. Mm -hmm. So the like, you know, then a lot of them are also very anti-papist if you will. And yes, uh, and that's a whole thing. But I think there is a certain, like, I feel like the actual, the actual, their actual identity as Catholics often in my experience, in these cases is less relevant than the fact that they can use their Catholic identity to kind of position themselves as like, I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the underdog. I'm kind of the minority here. So like I worked hard, and I everything I have I earned because I worked hard. Because I'm a, like my my piss because because my grandparents were immigrants and they were Catholics and I'm a Catholic and Catholics aren't mm-hmm. as cool. Therefore, I have this kind of my my upward mobility is different and therefore better.
1: That's yeah. Of course, it as with so much times when religion intersects with politics, it you you pick the bits that kind of suit yourself and abandon the rest. And it's um, and it's a funny one that the idea that Catholic moral teaching doesn't apply to issues like uh, refugee crisis or yeah. being anti-war, but it does apply to kind of the, other people's personal morality when they're in a crisis situation. Yeah,
0: it's almost like for a certain some of those lace curtain Irish. It is this like perfect assimilation his story of like being coming, letting yourselves become completely homogenized in yeah. as Americans, but using your like finding those little key points of identity to be like, that's where I make, that's where I'm unique and I'm an individual, even though you're totally homogenized otherwise. And <laughs> it's like, I i, I recently read, um, I guess about a year ago now, I read uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Say Nothing. Um, that was uh, his kind of history of the troubles Oh yes, and there was um, but there was one scene in it, uh, and I let my dad borrow the book, and he p- picked up on this too, where um, someone was going to the states in the eighties to fundraise, uh, mm. for the IRA, and he kind of he mentioned something about Marx, I think, to like one of, like one of the like wealthy Irish Americans who was there to like give money and empty their pockets out. Yeah, and they were all like. But this is confused and I'm uh, forgetting who it was, but he was just like in, 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 in whatever quote they used from in the interview that he did, he was like, I feel like me, like, like myself and the Americans had a very different definition of Republican. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and was, I mean, that's very true, but it was, and I was like, I absolutely, I can a hundred percent. This is realistic to me that like he could have come to, you know, New York city in 1987 and talked to a bunch of conservative right-wing American Republicans, and they would have been like, "Of course, I support this movement. We will totally give you money. Also, we do not particularly care for any of the things you actually are like claim to believe in, but like we completely support this."
1: This is something I do remember. This at the time that the um that some of those organizations, which may or may not have been linked to any political parties in Ireland, who knows downplayed the um the kind of the socialist kind of uh, leanings that of, of what people expected from united around when they got it
0: yeah i mean it's funny because i feel like i i keep sharing more and more james Connolly essays with my father that he's he missed while growing up mm. even though he's certainly closer to immigration uh than, than i am but he those are things that just like got lost in lost through the generations and it's interesting seeing which things get passed down through the generation and which things don't for sure. And then as your
1: father, when he would have been um, growing up as an Irish American in the, on the Eastern seaboard in America, then I remember that my dad was telling me when um, the movie high society with Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Grace Kelly came out. Um, it just seems like, a, I don't know it's a remake a musical remake of the Philadelphia story, but that the fact that they, that um, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra have this double musical number, you know, that's, um, oh you know have you heard it's in the stars but they're basically both singing about how well they're doing and my dad was saying that that the subtext for everyone got at the time that's kind of lost to modern audiences with these two people from catholic migrant backgrounds you know playing successful characters in a movie and grace then they're both chasing grace kelly who was from very irish american very outwardly irish american and that this is a very new thing huh I, don't, I, I, and, I never thought about that. Go go on. And then, so as I think then, and you think that, say, when I was, uh, I remember when I started seeing characters who were um, in the 80s and 90s who were outwardly Irish-American as typically kind of tough, cool cops like Bruce Willis and Die Hard and who were kind of, you know, quite coded, um, Irish-American coded in, um, but whereas more recently, I think now kind of, a quarter century on or so, um, you have the... Almost cliched now, the Boston crime movie, and you also have the Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and these seem to be the kind of most prominent kind of cultural representations of Irish America currently. Would, would that be? Am I missing something obvious? Or
0: uh, no, I mean, I think that's that's pretty much it. I think certainly there are, are Irish last names that just kind of get tossed onto characters who are vaguely middle class white people. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do. I, I, it's it's weird that we even in, in TV shows you rarely see the. The Bill Bill O'Reilly as a character, as a a fictional version of what what that would be, but you see a lot Mm -hmm. more of this like blue collar to this day, uh, like in the Boston crime ones, like in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I suppose well, this is. I just started watching Succession with my wife. I I believe they are Scottish
1: immigrants. Yes, even though they. They have some names, like uh, there's Siobhan is one of them. There's a Siobhan and a Connor, I believe. How did you feel about the whole uh, the phenomenon of the Boston crime movie? That It's all about kind of betrayal and Irish communities being shown as this kind of uh, template for this kind of death of, of America and all these other kind of, um, and those sorts of themes. I know a lot of Boston people kind of roll their eyes at the Boston crime drama. Yeah, and...
0: it's, it's funny because I both know, I know dudes who are kind of just like uh, people in those movies. Um, mm-hmm. but there aren't that many of them at this point in time and I think that the, those movies really kind of gained in popularity largely just because that was a lot more common for like people like Ben Affleck when they were growing up and That's yeah. and like Mark Wahlberg and these are also people who like obviously are very lace curtain now um, <laughs> there are differing stories about how how connected they were when they were or not when they were younger Um yeah i i have a feeling
1: that they um they, they they they've maybe they they learned how to do these accents from watching their gardener or something
0: right there yeah there's a there's kind of a weird like appropriation bit there of the like i mean like i know like mark Wahlberg grew up in dorchester and like, dorchester is the largest neighborhood in boston and it's incredibly diverse mm. and there are like there are like rough parts of, of dorchester there are parts that just like feel like lily white suburbs and that's just how it <laughs> is um and so it is weird because you can totally be like, I'm from Dorchester, I'm from Dot, da- it's tough. But you can also be in one of those really nice, nice, nice houses on the river. And it's not that tough. Mm. <laughs> um,
1: Absolutely. It's, it's like in Dublin, you get people who say that they're a real Northsider and they're, you know, and then they're, they're a doctor's kid from Clontarf. Oh, right, and...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's very similar in that case. Like, yeah, yeah and you maybe, you maybe you were around some of that stuff. Uh, I do think Boston has a, a kind of like unique binary tension to it uh because there is this like large working class and immigrant community right mm-hmm. next door to all these colleges and a lot of freaking wealth um and yes. that um you know the, the, the segregation is, is still like far from perfect uh, in this uh, in this city um but i think there is something interesting about the tension there that probably does make those mm-hmm. movies there, that does give an appeal to those movies. Um, and there's also yes. like a weird dichotomy about like Puritans in progress. Like this is like Massachusetts is like, this is the first state to legalize uh gay marriage. And like, it's been leading on progressive causes and yet it is also rooted in Puritanism and somehow Boston yes. has a reputation as like this drinking town. Uh, and yet happy hour is, is illegal here. And People like, right. people, like don't realize that, and uh, it's yeah. There's like a really weird kind of binary dichotomy there, and there, is, like unfortunately, there is a like the FBI in Boston is not very has a very terrible reputation with a kind of self dealing. Oh. <laughs> um, not just with oh god, um, I have no evil. idea. There's there's the Whitey Bulger thing, yeah. Uh, well, where, <laughs> where Whitey was like an informant uh, for the FBI while also mm-hmm. running. While his brother was running UMass Amherst, and he was also running or Giant Organized Crime. Um, the Tsarnaevs of the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, the older brother had like been working as an informant for the FBI at one point. Like, the FBI, the Holy FBI crap. in the city uh, has, a, they, they are occasionally like, oh, cool, I can totally use that guy and lead him on to get info. And it totally backfires every single time. And so that's definitely Mm -hmm. a thing thing. thing that happens here. Uh, And I Mm -hmm. I think because the city is, it's a city, but it's also like fairly small as far as cities go. And it doesn't maintain this kind of small town feel to it. I think it kind of separates it from New York, which is like, you know, a giant country in and of itself.
1: Yeah, of course, and yeah, I, I do know what you mean, that the Boston, there was there much more of a sense of smallness to, of, of physical smallness to the city compared to um, to Philadelphia or, or New York. Something that now, now I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of the physical city of Boston for my visits there, and two things come to mind, one of which is Boston is a horrible city to drive in.
0: Oh God, it's and terrible.
1: two, that Massachusetts plate drivers have a very bad reputation when they're driving anywhere outside the state.
0: So, um, this is... The- <laughs>
1: Mass holes. Yeah, no, called, mass, yeah.
0: Holes, mass holes are a very real phenomenon. Um, my wife took a job as an artistic director in a theater company uh, in Ithaca, New York, uh, three years ago. And uh, we had, we moved there for that job and we had just moved back to our place in, in JP. And uh, I, because ha- we're in the middle of a pandemic, I hadn't, I haven't changed my, my my license plates over from New York State to Massachusetts. And it's kind of amazing seeing how, how the other cars around me react to that? They see they <laughs> see the New York license, state license plate, and they just hate me. And they're just like, this guy's gonna make a dumb decision, no matter what, right away. And they're all cranky at me right away. And it is like it's weird because you also when we were in Ithaca, I've, I, I also found myself getting annoyed at the drivers there because a lot of mm. they like weren't aggressive enough; they were like too polite. And interesting. I, I was like, come on, I'm going to turn left here. I expect you to go forward and I'm going I'm to turn left after you come at me. And that's fine. I'm expecting you to be an asshole. And because I expect you to be an asshole, I can, I know how to drive accordingly.
1: Yeah, well, of course. He, and you, when people are fault. being
0: like, are like kind of being too polite and like offering to help. And I'm like, so you want me, you, okay, you want me to turn now? But you're stopping Why are you stopping? Just let go. And now there's more traffic. And I this is I I I feel very funny saying this because I'm also a cyclist. I, my main mode of transportation <laughs> in Boston is to bike around. I've been yes. through a few car accidents because the drivers are terrible and it sucks. And even as a when you're on a bike, there's an adrenaline rush of it. Um because you are like, cool, well, any of these assholes might murder me in three seconds. So you also kind of learn like how to navigate that part and yeah, it's definitely, a, it's like a roller coaster thrill every time you ride a bike, but it's like, once you get used to it, it just kind of becomes normal and like the high stakes game of it all ends up kind of balancing out if you know how to play the rules. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. And um, I know you and I, we were in touch a while back when you were writing a book and you wanted some vocabulary checked and you, it was really interesting how you were writing what you intersected some... Irish mythology and folklore into its stories about New England.
0: Yeah. So that book, uh, I, I have an agent representing that book, uh, though it's not, he hasn't, it's not sold yet. Uh, it's called pints of Gansett make you strong. Um, which is a riff on, uh, the punk band against me has a song about, uh, the singers Irish American grandparents. And it's called pints of Guinness make you strong, but yeah. Gansett is like the crappy New England swill beer, Oh, yes. Uh, so I made it that, but essentially I, as you asked about Boston crime stories, so I was like, those are popular. So I I wanted to write a Boston crime novel, except in this case, my detective is this, like, crotchety anarchist who deals with mostly fairy folk. Uh, and so yes. the good people <laughs> are dealing with their, like, dealing with all, like, doing whatever it takes to remain, you know, an undocumented immigrant in America right now. And sometimes it involves drugs. And... uh and mm-hmm. this one cranky anarchist is the kind of go-to detective to deal with that stuff. Uh, so I, I kind of pitched it to my agent as uh, Gone Baby Gone or Mystic River meets uh, American Gods. Fantastic. I think that so I try to bring in, uh, there's a there's a drug in the book called Tive, which I got from Tive for Ghost. And essentially oh. the drug is, uh, it's basically hu- uh, humans, human souls brought down <laughs> into, pill fo- into, into pill form. And yeah, okay. uh, that kind of... Brings in with the fairies are dealing with like changelings and uh, little children uh, that are kidnapped in because that's what fairies tend to do sometimes, mm-hmm. and because uh, the souls are valuable, and of course there's drugs because it's Boston crime story. Yes, but in this case, I was had a little fun with the mystical drug element of it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and lots of conversations about loyalty, people getting shot in the head.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, but <laughs> I, I actually I, one thing I was amazed that uh, I was reading the Yates book on like fairy tales and folklore years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the far uh the red man who, um, it said that, yeah, like he would often like kidnap the kids and replace them with a stick. <laughs> uh, that was mm-hmm. how it, how it worked, I guess. Um, and it was kind of part of his like trickster and like, whether he was, whether far was a clericon or a leprechaun or whatever, it was like up for debate or mm-hmm. questionable or depending on who you ask or whatever. Um, but, so, I mean, the opening line of the book is like this thick, thick Boston accent lady being saying, like slamming her fist on the table and saying, the good people stole my kid and turned him into a fucking stick. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no one believes me, but it's, I fucking mean it, man. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, okay, that happens. That happens sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, it was kind of fun when I gave people to read it. They, they all were very, um, I have, I have Fard Eric, or I call him Far Eric in the book mm-hmm. as a character, um. And he's a little—he's a little trickster, and uh it was kind of remarkable to me because I felt like I was like kind of riffing on a fairly generic like leprechaun-ish fairy type. Mm-hmm. But in this case, he's like a—he's like a construction worker who's also like four like four feet tall and has magic powers, and it's coming around in a building it, site. It, yeah, and but I was amazed at how many like all, everyone who read the book was like, "I really loved that character. I've never met a character like that." And part of me was like, "You've never met like a." rascally trickster fairy character who you know isn't a bad person but just kind of screws with you just because and i realized that well, okay i guess they didn't read the same like they hadn't heard the same stories with the good people that i did
1: <laughs> good stuff tom before you we wrap up oh we'd love to ask all our guests
0: what their favorite irish word is Now i i kind of i had my first answer for this and then i deliberated for a while but mm. the answer will remain the same it is uh Smuggler
1: roan. excellent But it's a popular one
0: yeah, it's, 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 it's today's, we're, we are recording this on a Tuesday and Tuesday is my dun, my Dungeons and Dragons night and oh. my, my character, my game name is named Smokerly Ron. Excellent. He, he's a, he's a warlock who follows Cthulhu. So there's lots of jellyfish-esque tentacles. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Except the, all my friends call him Smug. Of course. Well, like, yeah, come on. I'm like, I'm like God, just, at least they Smug like (laughs) a little bit
1: yeah you put the effort into coming up with a a very thoughtful name for your warlock people should try that (laughs) excellent tom dunn thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you so much this has been a delight likewise and we'll hopefully have you soon when the when that
0: book does come out and we can't wait
1: in the meantime, where else can people find the rest of your writing, your journalism and your other opinions and observations?
0: Yeah, well, my name is Tom Dunn with an H. That's T T H O M and uh D-U-N-N. And you can find me at Tom Dunn on Twitter, on uh Instagram on um, uh and bandcamp on TomDunn.net. I also I play I, I sing and play guitar in a, a indie rock band called the Roland High Life, kind of like Miller High Life, but with mm-hmm. a Roland, and we have an album coming out shortly and that's at Roland Highlife on various platforms but mostly if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram you will or you will get the most of it and I'm also regularly writing on uh, boingboing.net and um, the New York Times Wirecutter site
1: Fantastic. Tom done Slán of Thank you. Cheers Until next time, it's a slán from me mind yourselves and be decent to each other. <laughs> this has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Yeah, if it tickles your pickle,